Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. This week, we'll be discussing Goldman Sachs and Amazon, another big tech tie-up for the Wall Street name. Deutsche Bank going on the offensive and heading for a pre-tax profit at last. And bankers' misconduct, but in the canteen, not on the trading floor. Joining me in the studio to talk about all of this are Stephen Morris and Robert Smith from the FT, with our colleague Laura Noonan joining us from New York, and our special guest this week, Russell Quelch, specialist salesperson for the financial sector at Redburn. So let's start with Goldman Sachs and its Amazon partnership. Laura Noonan has discovered that the Wall Street Bank is in advanced talks with the US technology giant to offer small business loans in the US. And it's the second example of Goldman turning to big tech to break into mainstream areas of financial services. Last March, it announced a credit card partnership with Apple, which gives Goldman a direct channel to Apple's more than 100 million US subscribers. Now the bank is building technology that would allow it to offer loans to small and medium-sized businesses over Amazon's lending platform. Amazon currently offers $800 million worth of loans to the small businesses that sell on its site, using the data that it holds on their cash positions to provide quick decisions on credit. Laura joins us now. Laura, what's behind Goldman's decision to do this? So I guess what Goldman is looking for really is a way to get deeper into US middle market lending. And this offers a good way to get a lot of penetration without spending an awful lot of money on the kind of marketing campaign you might need to do to reach these SMEs. I mean, they have no interest whatsoever in setting up the kind of branch footprint that other US banks use to reach these small and mid-sized lenders. So doing a deal with someone like Amazon gives them access to these people in a very easy way. Now, we don't know the economics of the deal and we may never know the economics of the deal. So we don't know how much money Goldman is going to make from this. But certainly in terms of getting access to a large number of potential customers, this is a very good step in that direction. And not the first time that Goldman's taken a clever shortcut via a big technology company. The Apple credit card partnership we mentioned earlier, how successful has that been? Goldman would say it's been very successful. In fact, they would say it has been the most successful credit card launch ever, although actually at their investor day last week, one of their execs accidentally downgraded that to one of the most successful credit card launches. So maybe they're getting a bit more circumspect on that front. It certainly got them a lot of visibility. In the US credit cards market, the rewards aspect is probably the main reason people choose a credit card. So the Apple card gives you rewards in cash and you can see those cash dollars adding up on your Apple wallet every day. Most other programs give you rewards in airline points, in points to spend in retail stores, in points for hotel chains. So it's a very subtle game, the US cards game. And it's not clear that once the novelty factor of the Apple card being super easy to use is over, whether people are actually going to stick with that. 
anecdotally, most people who I talk to about the Apple Card, they use it for their day-to-day purchases, but they put bigger purchases on things like their Amex cards that give them airline points. So the longer term success, we don't know. What we do know is it has been a highly visible thing for Apple and for Goldman Sachs. It certainly made people who would never have thought that Goldman Sachs was a financial institution they would do business with. It's made them aware of Goldman Sachs. So I think if the main thing Goldman were looking to achieve here was a massive branding and visibility exercise, they certainly done that. Goldman is one of the banks that has historically done a lot of work in Silicon Valley from an investment banking perspective. So they would know companies like Apple, Amazon very well from their investment bankers, helping those companies to do deals and to raise cash. So I think it's really interesting seeing how they're leveraging their existing roots in Silicon Valley to bring their own bank into this next era where it is going to become more of a bank that does different things for the Main Street as well as for Wall Street. Yes, and on that, you mentioned the investor day that Goldman had recently. Of course, this Amazon tie-up, the Apple tie-up, just part of the strategy that it was laying out to investors there. What was the general response to the plans that Goldman talked about? I guess there were two levels. I mean, if you were looking at it from an effort perspective, most people gave them A for effort. The executives were all very polished. The day, I think, from an operational perspective went very well. I think people welcomed the spirit with which it was done because don't forget, this is the first time Goldman Sachs has ever held an investor day. So I think people really respected the effort. In terms of the outcome and the meat of what they heard, That wasn't quite so well received. People were very conscious going into this that there was a lot of hype around it and there was a lot of expectation that maybe this wouldn't meet. I think one of the things that people said was there was no wow factor. David Solomon, who runs Goldman Sachs and his colleagues, had been trying to tell people for months here that, yes, we've been talking about the investor day for a year, but it's not going to be a big bang. It's not going to be a big reveal. But people didn't really believe it. And some people still held out hope that they would find within this investor day the silver bullet, which would get Goldman Sachs from its return levels to the return levels of JP Morgan Chase. And that just wasn't there. It is, as Goldman had been saying all along, a much slower burn. What they're trying to do is really turn a very traditional investment banking, trading, merchant banking business into a broader financial service institution. So far, they're not doing it by acquisition. They're trying to do a lot of it organically. That takes time. I think that was very much the message people heard on Investor Day. This is going to take time. There were outside hopes that maybe Goldman would announce a big M&A deal where it was going to buy a US regional bank, which would allow them to get there a lot faster. So the share price reaction has been very muted just because most of what they talked about was what they will do in between three to five years time. And because Goldman has underperformed for the last three or four years, people are not going to give them credit today for what they promised to do in three or five years time. It's really become a show me story. Yeah, so this Amazon partnership, just one step on a much longer journey by the sounds of it. Thank you, Laura, very much indeed. Now, a few days ago, Deutsche Bank reported its largest loss in five years, and its shares gained nearly 4% to hit a new 12-month high. In fact, they are now up more than a fifth since December. Why? Because the market clearly believes Chief Executive Christian Zaving when he says his costly restructuring is working and will finally deliver a profit this year. But the annual net loss that Deutsche just reported, some 5.7 billion euros, was larger than analysts expected. So is the worst really over? Stephen, you've looked at all the numbers. What are the signs that Deutsche is turning around? Well, they did beat analyst consensus estimates. But remember, this is a bank which has constantly disappointed for years and years now. 
leading a lot of people, including journalists and analysts, to suspect things will always be a little bit worse than they seem at Deutsche. They benefited from a bit of an uptick in fixed income trading, about 31%, but that wasn't as much as the big American peers, which you'll remember are also larger scale players who will have benefited more from the revenue uplift. And a little bit on the concerning side were two of the more stable businesses that Christian Saving is supposed to be pivoting towards and allocating more capital to in order to generate more stable revenues, the corporate bank and the private bank. Both of those saw revenues decline in the quarter, which isn't a good sign from the future and shows the pressure that wealthy people keeping money on the sidelines and negative rates are having on Deutsche's ability to generate more stable, consistent non-investment bank trading earnings. Russell, you were pretty accurate in your prediction of how the market would react to Deutsche's numbers. So clearly you and others see signs that the restructuring is paying off. Yeah, I think you've got to be conscious of the starting point here. Deutsche did manage to take some market share in places like high yield and investment grade debt origination, which was encouraging. I think the asset management business is also starting to benefit from investor confidence returning full year net inflows were higher than the street expected. That was four quarters now of inflows reversing all of the outflows we saw in 2018. The other point I would also make is at this stage, the restructuring costs are running to plan and it's maybe early to make a big call on this, but we've seen costs overrun at a number of banks who have embarked on big restructurings. The better capital position, which was one of the key highlights of the Q4 results, should also give management a bit more wiggle room to speed up in certain investments if desired and to take advantage of market gyrations using their balance sheet. Stephen Russell mentions the capital position. That was better. Better than expected or as expected? It was better than expected and also very high when you look at a lot of other European banks. You know, when you look at the likes of Santander and the French banks, they usually run capital of somewhere between 11 and 12%. And this is that acronym CET1, Common Equity Tier 1, the highest quality capital you can have to act as a buffer from potential losses. So Deutsche really has been stockpiling this with investors looking at this as the ability to absorb losses as they continue to run down this 280-odd billion euro bad bank. And also in the future, if they look to actually start paying out dividends. Now, they're doing a lot of work on the cost side. Bonuses in the investment bank were down 30% this year, which is more than at Barclays and definitely more than at Credit Suisse, where the amount stayed about flat. And they seem to have a bit of stability at the top. Three management executives, their contracts were up for renewal. Two of them, Stuart Lewis, the chief risk officer, and the chief financial officer, James von Moltke, they both renewed for another three years. So it looks like the board, the other executives and investors are happy with the current management team. And for once, Deutsche might actually be able to get through a year on a relatively stable footing. Yeah, so retaining executives. But just going back to what you were saying about the investment bank, bonuses down. But Russell, the performance, I think, was improved. And yet this is an area where the strategy is to reduce dependence, isn't it? Look, I think it's important to say that the momentum in the investment bank is coming from the core bank, which is retaining. There's little evidence to suggest that Deutsche has made an incorrect decision in scaling down equities, for example. The performance of equities across the industry was way behind that of fixed income in Q4 anyway. And European equities remains heavily impacted by MIFID regulations. In the capital release unit, DB's leverage exposure reduced by some 50 billion, primarily driven by that sale of the prime business to BNP. But it really was the performance in FIC, as mentioned, that improved Deutsche's performance. And that's the business they're keeping. So I think we can take heart from that. They've made right decisions at a management level. 
And where would you say there's still a lot more work to be done? We could start a long list, but the plan calls for faster integration of Deutsche Bank and Postbank in Germany. That should cut the private bank costs by about $1.4 billion as management of flagged. 200 million of that is this year. Digital will be a key part of that. The private bank revenues remain under pressure. There's no quick fix there. It's difficult to shake up things instantly, but there are signs of improvement. I think similarly in the corporate bank, returns continue to fall. That's despite the impact of ECB tiering, management's ongoing efforts to shift the deposit mix and implement deposit rate charging. There does seem a bit of a limit to a management's ability here to control the revenue outlook, in all honesty. I think this is a business area massively impacted by uh, moves in the macro scenario. I'd finally add that on the investment bank, it's perhaps too soon to discuss Deutsche taking back a large slice of market share. Ultimately, the key structural issue for the investment bank and the rest of the European investment bank sector is fragmentation. US banks have been eating into European banks' market share for some time now, so the challenge is intensifying. We have started to see some players come out of that industry. Deutsche does need to find a way to grow its market share again while being a sort of niche-focused franchise versus the US banks who really rely on being all-service providers. Stephen, just last word for you. What do you think investors really want to see to be convinced that this job is done? Well, I think Russell hit on a lot of those points. I mean, they need to see their continued delivery on cost cuts. I mean, that's the one thing that management can keep under their control. Talk about the wider revenue environment, profitability, its strategy and cost cuts. So investors want to see those keep coming through. They would also like to see Deutsche win back not necessarily global investment banking market share, but certainly German investment banking market share. They can't be 10th in advising on German mergers and doing IPOs and helping private equity firms. Even for Deutsche Bank, there is no excuse for that still going on. So they do need to start making significant wins on what they would consider their home turf and their core remaining investment banking businesses like European FIT trading, for example. Once we see two to three quarters of that back-to-back, the share price might start to lift away from record lows and their long-suffering shareholders, you know, some of whom are uh, are big boys and can deal with the losses like Cerberus and Qatar. But remember, they're all underwater and there are very few active buyers of the stock at the moment. Yes, being 10th in Germany when you're called Deutsche Bank, not a good place to be. Stephen Russell, thank you very much indeed. And finally today, bankers' behaviour. We learnt this week that Citigroup has suspended one of its most senior bond traders in London following allegations of, wait for it, stealing food from the office canteen. The trader in question has declined to comment, referring inquiries to City, which has also declined to comment. But it does sound like one of the more bizarre conduct cases of recent times. Our man following the trail of breadcrumbs, if indeed breadcrumbs were involved, we're not sure, is Robert Smith. Robert, what have you discovered? Yeah, so it's a completely bizarre tale, but it's true. Citigroup's head of high-yield trading, that's junk bonds in colloquial speak, was suspended last month. And the reason he was suspended was because he was caught allegedly stealing food from the canteen. It was nothing to do with his trading activity I mean, this sounds like such a strange thing because this is quite a senior person who I'm imagining would have been tremendously well paid. Yeah, indeed. You know, City are a big trader in junk bonds in Europe. He headed the department. He would have earned at least a million quid. 
the timing of this means he's likely to forego his bonus. Well, he almost certainly is about to forego his bonus, which would have been paid imminently. When you don't get paid a bonus, it's called getting donutted in banking speak. So I'll uh, refrain from making jokes about that, but the listeners can fill them in themselves. So yeah, it's an utterly bizarre story all round and hard to fathom really what went on here. And also you make the point about possibly foregoing the bonus, but presumably that would have been quite a decent bonus given that this division had been performing particularly well of late. Yes, exactly. This wasn't a case of someone doing badly at their job and trying to do something, you know, to get back at their employer or anything like that. By all accounts, a very good trader and also, by all accounts, a very well-liked, nice guy, not known as a sharp-elbowed person. So it really is one of the bizarrest stories I've ever uncovered. Do you think this is symptomatic of how much scrutiny there is on the sector and how there is absolutely no leeway for conduct? Because there have been other cases, haven't there, other banks where seemingly minor misdemeanours have resulted in quite draconian action. Yeah, I think there is a serious point here, and it's to do with compliance, it's to do with enforcement at banks these days. One of the ironies in this is that Liar's Poker, which is quite a famous book about Solomon Brothers in the 80s, which sort of became Citigroup, so Citigroup's predecessor. There's a famous story in there where they stitch up a bloke by pretending he's going to get banned by the SEC for stealing from the canteen, but it's all a big joke. And here we are 30 years later, and it's not a joke anymore. It shows how compliant banks have become. And yeah, there's been previous cases of this. And the lesson is, although it seems silly, it is a case of gross misconduct. The famous one everyone remembers is the person who worked for BlackRock, who was caught dodging fares multiple times on a train. He got suspended from senior roles in finance by the regulator. But there's been cases involving smaller amounts of money. There was an employee of Mizuho Bank who stole a colleague's, I think it was the chain guard on a bike, which is apparently worth about five quid. He was fired. And the lesson there as well is that he tried to appeal and lost. This is the thing. If you get caught, it's gross misconduct and you're going to have very little chance for legal recourse. So it's not the value of what's involved, is it? It's simply the conduct and the behaviour. Yeah, it's absolutely the principle. In the Mizuho case I just mentioned, the guy in question said that this was a convenient excuse to get rid of him. And I had no idea about the merits of that, but it just didn't matter. If you get caught conducting theft, even if it has nothing to do with your job or trading, and no matter how small, it's going to be very difficult to retain your job in a frontline trading position at a bank. And do we know what's going to happen in this Citigroup case or not? I don't know. And I'd be loathe to try and guess the, the outcome, given all the sensitivities involved. But it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, for sure. Yes, indeed. And very wise not to speculate. It reminds me of the infamous case of the Financial Times honesty tuck shop, which had to close down <laughs> because of a lack of honesty. So before we get too holier than thou, perhaps we should dwell on that. Robert, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's all for this week. And my thanks to Robert, to Stephen Morris, to Laura Noonan, and our special guest, Russell Quelch, the specialist salesperson for the financial sector at Redburn. And my thanks to all of you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banks. 
Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.